Hey there, fellow humans, Mark Labuski for the Simply Practically Human podcast. And I've got two amazing human beings I'm joined by today for the episode, Kylie Tarleton, who's a very proud Wiradjuri woman from the Orange region of New South Wales in Australia, and is also the Senior Manager of Diversity and Inclusion for TAFE New South Wales, and also proud Gomeroy man, Daniel Jack, who is also the Manager of Aboriginal Engagement and Strategic Partnerships at TAFE New South Wales as well. Really looking today to have some conversations that in some respects were going to make me feel quite uncomfortable and digging into a whole lot of areas around understanding Aboriginal culture, asking some questions that I'd perhaps been a little bit reluctant to ask in the past around things like acknowledgement to country, what it means and things like that, but also really digging into some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that are there right in front of us now around understanding the impacts of, let's call it a bit of systemic racism and I guess missing opportunities to learn from the way that over 60,000 plus years that the Aboriginal culture has has looked into leadership and what uh, will be described today as lateral leadership. So this one's a long one, but it's absolutely well worth having a listen to and I'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. I am delighted today to be joined by Wiradjuri woman Kylie Tarlett and Gomeroy man Daniel Jack. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Mark. Let's start there because I'm coming to you from Wiradjuri country today um, in Victoria around Melbourne area. And one thing I do want to talk about is some of my reluctance to ask questions about certain things to do with Aboriginal culture. And and one of them is around a acknowledgement of country. And it's something that I I do sporadically, but I really felt compelled to do it today. And I think I, I need to be be better than that. So what does it mean to have the country acknowledged and, and the and the mob that you're from or the country that you're from? Who wants to kick us off? I think the acknowledgement to country is a, a respect thing. And Daniel probably can explain this a little bit better than I can. He's got a great explanation for it. But I think it's around really acknowledging we're on Aboriginal land and we are Aboriginal people. Whenever I introduce myself, I always start with I'm a Wiradjuri woman from Orange in the Central West, actually living in Molong. Um, Molong is the Wiradjuri word for the place of many rocks. And it actually gives an opportunity for education as well. So we are who we are through identity. And I'm a Wiradjuri woman. My children are Wiradjuri. I live on Wiradjuri country. Very lucky to live and work, you know, on my country, which is amazing. Not not everybody um, is connected or has the opportunity to live and work on their country either. So I feel very privileged. And it is a part of us. So, you know, country is who we are. We are country and country is us. I think that's probably the best way I can explain it. Magnificent. Thank you. And, and Daniel? Yeah, I guess for me, by acknowledging country, it keeps the fact that we are the traditional owners, the first people in that other nation and that in the forefront of people's minds as well. It uh, continues the protocols that have been practised by our people for thousands and thousands of years around welcoming the country, uh, welcoming people to country. 
in traditional times, our people didn't just sort of walk, waltz into someone else's country unannounced. They'd uh, light a signal fire on the border of the country or the place they wished to visit. The landowning group would come in and find out what people's business were in visiting. Then uh, some gifts or some things might be exchanged and then the landowning group would outline what are some of the protocols I'd expect whilst you're visiting that particular place, some of the do's and the don'ts, and then those people would be welcomed in but they'd have to adhere to those protocols and have to acknowledge those people and not go where they shouldn't go and yeah, be respectful and that as well. But the landowning group also had that duty of care for people on their country and that as well. So they, they wanted to make sure they had safe passage, that they were taken care of and that they had a good time whilst they're on, on that country. Um, so by acknowledging country, yeah, it keeps those protocols in the front of people's minds and it continues those traditions around welcoming to country, although it's adapted and that um, over time um, and it's not done the, exactly the same way it was originally done. Um, it's still a way of keeping our practices alive and, and keeping our culture and our practices um, around. Also treated as well, I guess if I was to do acknowledgement of country and I do in the workplace a lot, rather than just you know, becoming like a tokenistic gesture that I'm acknowledging country, I um, share a little bit about the country or the place that I'm on or my own country or I try to provide a bit of a, a cultural fact or something about the context of the meeting that we're in, treated as, I guess, a, a mini cultural awareness session where I'm planting seeds and that in people, then they're going to want to go out and, and learn more themselves. Then uh, when it comes to the crunch, they could become advocates for us and, and help protect our culture for future generations and that as well. Thank you both for sharing. The other thing that came up there was... um. To understand why it's so important and why it's been happening for so long is is critical. And then the other side of it is the people who roll their eyes and it's tokenistic. And I, I think sometimes it can feel a bit like that when people are just reading off a sheet. For me, when I do one, and, and you know, I'm, as a non-Aboriginal, one of the things that's really important to me in my work is connection and belonging. And I think it's something that has really stood out strongly to me around the way that they say Aboriginals do business. And a lot of it's more about getting to know each other, connecting, creating that sense of belonging before other, let's call it other business happens, which I think asks about to what the Westerners do, which is let's get into the business and we might get to know a bit about you later on. So I, I, I love that you've shared that. That's not where I usually start, but I love that. So here's where I usually start is I ask my guests for their first impressions of me. And then I take a big, deep breath and I think, I wonder what the hell they're going to say. So, I'll, I'll, again, I'll let either of you go first. What were your first impressions? We had a good chat some time ago, but what did you think? I think for me, Mark, I think you're very polarising. You've got this energy about you that's equally engaging and understanding, but you appreciate the difference in worldview. Some of the podcasts that I've heard and conversations we've had, you you get the other side or you appreciate the other side and you're wanting to learn more about the other side of difference to preference to what you may think about. But at the same time, you also cause disruption in people's thought processes, which I love. That's certainly something that I do myself, but do respectfully. And I see that you do that respectfully as well. But you bring reality to the conversation and remind us that, you know, sometimes we forget that we're human. I think that was my that was my sort of first impression. Thank you. Thank you very much. Daniel, for you? I guess for me, I'm, I'm always a little nervous meeting new people. Um, so I had to reflect on that, but I, don't know, I felt that you're immediately able to build rapport 
really well. Like you just come across as I know someone that I could be open and honest with, and just allow for vulnerability. Um, <laughs> potentially say more than what I should say, but but yeah, I guess safe space that you created. Thank you. Thank you. So for you two, I, I always, I, I like to return the favour here as well. So for Kylie, I remember we we first met in the offices in TAFE, New South Wales with that little catch up there, I think. I may have seen you on some virtual things and whatnot, but determined, courageous and bloody vulnerable. Like I, I just, the first time that you shared in the room, I was like, oh, that's why I was like, we need, I need to talk to you more. So I, I love that. And for, for you, Daniel, very thoughtful, like Really, really thoughtful, considerate, and a, and a level of humility that is off the charts, mate. So I I appreciated, and and I knew that you were nervous. And the other thing I loved is you shared that you were happy to put it out there. So there was a vulnerability there, and I hope that that helped us to connect, and and, and then helps us with with where we're going to head today. So today is about a whole lot of things, and as a non-Aboriginal who has been doing a lot of reading for the last couple of years to try and understand more about culture more about a whole lot of things, connection, belonging, what, what it means to be Aboriginal. I, I, I just think it's something that, that I didn't get to know enough about as a kid growing up at school. We, we did nothing. In fact, I think I've said to both of you, I, I think I had, had some time at uh, Nootmaluk Gorge not long back up in Catherine, and they, four hours of cultural immersion, I learned more in four hours than I had in 55 years, which is both saddens me and makes me a bit angry. So Let's start with a little bit about both of your backstories, because I think this is where we bring the human element in before we get into talking about some things in the workplace. Love you to share a bit about your backstory, uh, where you grew up. Obviously, you've talked about the, the lands that you grew up on or country you grew up on, and what's influenced you and impacted on you to get into the line of work that you're in. So Kylie, in as a Senior Manager of Diversity Inclusion at TAFE New South Wales, and and Daniel is Manager of Aboriginal Engagement and Strategic Partnerships as well at TAFE New South Wales. So how about you kick us off, Kylie, your backstory? Um, yeah, thanks, Mark. So, you know, I'm a rural woman born and raised in Orange in the rolling hills of the Central West, now living in Molong, the place of many rocks. I guess in terms of who influenced me, again, going back to sort of working and living on country, being accepted for who I am as an Aboriginal woman, in the town and the community that I live. I'm, I'm a part of the community. I'm accepted in the community. I give back to my community in this town as well. And I'll sort of go into that a little bit later. But, you know, what that looks like is that, you know, I can, I can actually bring my whole self to who I am. So when I was younger, I know that I had an Aboriginal backpack on and, you know, sometimes I'd have to take that backpack off and you know, not be Aboriginal. And what I mean by that is I couldn't bring my whole self to work because people didn't understand cultural safety. And I think I think every Aboriginal person in the workplace has experienced this where they've had to carry an Aboriginal backpack and sometimes you're Aboriginal and sometimes you're not. I'm in an identified job at the moment. I haven't always been in an identified job, so an Aboriginal identified job, which means that you are Aboriginal by parentage and you are Aboriginal by qualification under the Lands Rights Act. And so that means that I have a skill set or a capability that I bring to the position, which means, you know, I have influence in terms of my role. 
but I guess in terms of who has influenced me, and I have to, I have to say, my mother in the first instance, and I think that determination comes from there, where Mum is sort of, um, she's an Aboriginal elder in my community, and she's determined. You know, she's outspoken. She's one of those women who don't take no for an answer, and she's always had to fight for her own rights. You know, she was stolen. She was part of the stolen generation when she was very young. So knowing her story and looking back on her story and knowing that, you know, she had to fight for even to get back to her family, you know, in the end was something that I think, you know, my life, you know, while sometimes I feel like I might have, you know, been hard done by in some areas, it was never as hard as or tough as what my mum's life was. So I always respect her for that and know that she fought the hard fight. And, you know, being in our community as well, working with youth for over 40 years um, and helping to support the youth in our community for over 40 years, you know, and some of the things that she did, you know, she got a youth centre built and, you know, really pushing back on, on what we called white policy in terms of supporting our youth and knowing that she was one of those vulnerable youth in her youth as well. So she's probably the most influential person in my in my world. Others that I see in terms of policy and change, there's a young man that walked from Queensland to Canberra to give uh, some message sticks to the Prime Minister, Alwyn Doolan. You know, he was 27 years of age when he when he did that walk. And the Prime Minister didn't meet him, but he didn't he didn't let that worry him. Linda Burney came out and Ken White came out to meet him and the message was given and, you know, we were able to sort of, um, or he was able to sort of know that he had influenced across the board. So, you know, he has to be one man that really stands out. And in between all of that, he made a special visit to me into the hospital where my son was having treatment. My son was quite ill for quite some time and he came to visit him um, in the hospital and he did some cultural healing with him and he didn't know us from a bar of soap, but, um, you know, he made that effort. So, you know, as a part of what he was trying to do with changing policy, he was also helping my son with his with his healthcare as well. And Linda Burney probably has to be a huge influence in my life. She came to my graduation in year 12. I was one of six that graduated in in high school. And she actually, they called us the super six. And she actually came to my high school graduation and did a speech. And I think that was sort of the start of, you know, what schools kind of thought it was important to close the gap and, you know, have people, Aboriginal people do their HSC. So I think they're probably the three main people in my life that have really influenced me. So Linda Burney is obviously, you know, much older than Alwyn, but the difference in terms of age doesn't really necessarily matter in terms of that lateral leadership. So, yeah, I, I think that's really what, what has influenced me. In terms of my role, there's lots of things that have influenced me to sort of go into the diversity and inclusion space. I had a niece who had a very severe disability called Cornelia Delang syndrome and watching my sister have to fight the good fight for her as well. So we had the Aboriginal fight, we had the disability fight and really had to sort of advocate for my niece to, you know, have basic services. My niece has since passed in very unfortunate circumstances, but being Aboriginal, having to fight that fight, um, watching my sister have to advocate for her daughter, that was really sort of hard to see as well. And I thought there's really there's really big change that I can make in terms of, you know, diversity and inclusion and people understanding, you know, that personal preference can actually be influenced yeah. and that we can really make sure that we can showcase what many call difference but actually isn't difference to those people. You know, I'm not different from being Aboriginal 
I feel that others might be different from me, but I don't feel that I'm different and I'm sure other people feel the same. So I think it's it's learning about our preferences and how we can actually influence change on those preferences to see difference in worldview perspectives. So, yeah, I, I think that that's sort of probably what's really influenced me to go into the line of work that I'm doing now. Good on you. I love that there's influences from different places. I love when you use that term lateral leadership. We might talk about that as we as we go along. Um, Daniel, for you. Yeah, so um, I guess I come from a long line of um, proud people. My father is a proud Aboriginal man. My mother is a Pakia white woman from New Zealand, but I do identify as a Gomorrah man. So my, my family, I descend from a place called Cutterbri, which is sandwiched between Narrabri and the Warren Bungles and that, uh, the Pilliga Scrub area, beautiful uh, woodland. Yeah, I guess for me, my nan was um, one of the first twins born in Pilliga itself, her father, my great-grandfather, Jack Trindle, he, uh, he joined the armed services as a way to provide some opportunities for our family. Um, in order to do that, he had to lie about his Aboriginality. I've seen his, his arm enlistment papers and I say he's born in Bristol, England, and his father's white and his mother's white. So it's, it's things like this that, you know, those people that came before us, some of the hurdles and that that you know, they had to go through and the lies that they had to live just to provide for themselves and try to give themselves a, a better a better life. But yeah, my, my uh, great-grandfather, so he was injured in a, in a plane crash over Papua New Guinea within the war. Following that, he, he requested compassionate posting in Newcastle. So our family relocated to Newcastle. And yeah, so that's, that's where I've been raised myself and that's where I call home now. I've always grown up Aboriginal uh, from a young age, I went to preschool at the Awabakal Preschool, which is an Aboriginal preschool in um, Newcastle, and I where really grew to love education with an Aboriginal twist, like customised Aboriginal education, the extra nurturing and that that comes with that, being an environment around culture, respect, and having community, and that reinforced and that all the time. In terms of influences in that for me, uh, when I was in school, I'd lost my father previously. So really, I guess I lacked male role models growing up, but I went to a culture camp as a part of school, early in school, maybe about year eight, uh, where I met two people who have been really influential in my life. One of them was Uncle Paul Gordon, um, and the other one was um, Uncle Sean Gordon. Both of them helped change the way I see the world. Um, Uncle Paul um, is a really well-respected um, elder and someone who's been instrumental in my life. And he's, he's really the positive male role model that I was really seeking, particularly at that age, sort of young teen. Some bad influences that around me could have gone sort of one or two ways. But having him in my life, he helped expose me to culture and, and real culture in that as well. I'm not, I know some of the, the falsities and that that you sort of see getting around. But Mark, you touched on in the beginning and that, the bet, sort of your perception of me and something that stood out being humility. That's, that's one of the main things that Uncle Paul, I feel, has taught me. Uh, the values around humility, respect, and, and reciprocity. And that's it's values that I try to take with me everywhere I go in life, and it's helped create pride and strengthen my identity. Uh, the other person I mentioned there, um, Uncle Sean Gordon. So Sean Gordon, he ran Yamalong, which is an Aboriginal organisation out of Newcastle. And we did a, a school program and that with him where we had to, from scratch, come up with an idea for a, a product that we could source, create ourselves and try to find a market for and sell. So we, we come up with the idea of, uh, I guess, creating like a Lily Pilly Jam product at the time. And we had to 
identify where we'd source the ingredients from, what we'd look to do around branding, distribution, all that sort of stuff. And it was this actual program, the program that we did there that helped plant a seed within me, an entrepreneurial sort of seed of the the value that there is um, in exploring business opportunities and where possible combining that with culture as well. So that's two people that I felt have really been instrumental in my life. In terms of how it's influenced work, a big part of my role requires me to be innovative, entrepreneurial, and look at new ways of doing things, look at ways that we can explore opportunities that have been outside TAFE sort of reach previously. So having that cultural lens and having the entrepreneurial sort of influence, that allows me to identify new opportunities, to think outside the box and to come up with ideas for new products that haven't been considered previously. An example of that at the moment, um, we're looking at a, a cultural tourism product with a couple of different partners that I can't really sort of go into detail on now, but using mixed reality. So finding a way of using emerging technologies and coupling that with our culture, old ways and new ways and providing new opportunities by grouping them together. I love it. Thank you both for sharing. Like seriously, as you sharing your stories, uh, there's a bit of emotion flowing here. I've got to say that the stolen generation, Kylie, you shared that story about about your, your mum and um but also, you know, and I said I was reading this book called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia at the moment. And just to your point, Daniel, the need to hide Aboriginality. When I'm reading these stories in this book, 90% of them have been that, that people were saying they were from Spain and where the dark colour from, oh, we're, we're sort of European or whatever it might be. The workplace now, uh, again, I have a fascination on... 60,000 plus years of culture and 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 what I'm going to say, whatever that leadership is, because it's very, very different to, I think, the way that we look at Western leadership, there's this thing around hierarchy and tenure and who can be the leaders and who aren't the leaders and, and who gets to make all the decisions. And it's all about, let's call it technical business. Like Let's get straight into the business of profit and all of these things. I'm interested in how can organisations start to embrace, you called it lateral leadership before, Kylie. I'm sure there's a whole lot of other terms as well, but what can leadership and what can organisations learn from Aboriginal culture to, I'm going to say, elevate leadership to somewhere where it needs to be, which is about connection, belonging. And you said it before, and I love what you said, Daniel, you said culture and you said not like that culture that we talk about today because for some reason, we're trying to measure culture in the workplace, and that's bullshit because I only think you can feel culture. And then I say that to a lot of people, and they go, no, no, we've got to measure it because we've got to measure everything. So what are your thoughts? How do we start to embrace the Aboriginal leadership model, whatever that might be, and bring it into the workplace? I think for me, Mark, being in strategy and policy at the moment, and it is a place that I had strived to be in the last 10 years. So I set a goal to be in strategy and policy 10 years ago because I knew that it was one of the only places to make change and to make real impactful change. And I think, you know, whenever an organisation is making any decision, they need to ask the question, how will it impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's how will it meet any of the outcomes that we need to meet in terms of the 17 close the gap targets set by the Premier? That's a nation's responsibility. So every time we make a decision, 
we should actually measure it back to those 17 targets because that's around health, housing, employment, education. Um, it's about the impact of you know life expectancy on our kids. It's about the gap in education, the gap in health, the disparities in how long non-Aboriginal people live versus how long Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live. And so I think if everybody made a decision based on those things, we would actually get somewhere in terms of closing the gap. But a lot of people making a lot of decisions don't necessarily think it's their responsibility to even bring that into the equation. I'm advocating now for diversity and inclusion. You know, every time you make a decision, think about people with disability, think about multicultural Australia, think about the LGBTQI plus community, think about people, vulnerable communities and people in rural and remote Australia. And so it's really about bringing it into the discussion around the decision making. So what are the impacts? You know, what's that social impact? What's that corporate social responsibility? You know, instead of thinking about what benefit is that going to bring us financially in the next financial year, you know, what benefit is that going to bring us in the next 30 years? Yep. It doesn't necessarily have to be an instant financial return. It can be a return in other ways. You know, it can be a return in, in sick leave. You know, a, a thing that I'm thinking about at the moment is around that cultural cost. So as Aboriginal people, we work in a government organisation that is still predominantly white policy. And I say that because Aboriginal decisions aren't made in every single decision. And until they are made in every single decision that we make, it can then only be a shared value or a shared innovation and a shared responsibility. But I think it's not, you know, Close the Gap isn't just a project. And our organisation has come a long way. I've been at TAFE for over 20 years and TAFE New South Wales, our organisation has come a long way. I'm really excited to be working at TAFE in this day and age. I think today is a really exciting time to work at TAFE New South Wales because we have amazing leaders. Our executive leadership team are taking the responsibility for Aboriginal and closing the gap and we're able to have those conversations. You know, Steve Brady, our leader, comes to our TAFE Aboriginal Advisory Council meetings and gets advice from our Aboriginal leaders external to TAFE New South Wales and he also comes to our internal leadership meetings where he takes advice from us as leaders as well. Julie Tickle is amazing, our Chief People and Culture Officer, who is leading us in terms of, you know, policy and strategy. And I have the utmost respect for Julie. One of my favourite human beings. She epitomises what humanity is about, that one. And uh, I love to blow a bit of smoke up her backside when I get the chance. So thanks, Kylie, <laughs> for bringing her name up. Yeah, no, so do I. I think I don't know that we would be in the Aboriginal space, exactly where we are without Julie, you know, leading us in this space. So really have a lot of a lot of respect for yeah. Julie. But I think one of the other things is, you know, in terms of changing policy and strategy is that we still have a long way to go and we are on a maturity journey. You know, looking back over the last 20 years, the change that we have made, you know, we have some amazing Aboriginal leaders in TAFE New South Wales and the collective, we can really make some change. But also the understanding that Aboriginal change isn't Aboriginal people's responsibility. You know, reconciliation is a shared responsibility. And I think it's just coupling that concept to influencing the decision-making will help making that change as well. I call it the 1,000-hour conversation where it actually takes 1,000 hours of conversation with one person to really help to support their difference in understanding their, their own preference. Yeah. And, you know, when I say preference, I mean 
probably unconscious bias, but I don't really like to use the words unconscious bias. I think the unconscious preference is probably rings true to me where you grow up and you prefer something. We do as Aboriginal people as well. We grow up and we prefer, you know, we connect with our people, but, you know, you sort of learn to live in two worlds and, you know, navigate both worlds and both worldviews and be able to have those conversations. So it's probably the conversations with, you know, listening and learning absorbing responsibility with practical actions that can make real sustainable change. Yep. So, Daniel, from your perspective in this part as well, I I love some of the things that Kylie shared there, particularly that you've got to involve the Aboriginal voice and you've got to take things into account if we're going to truly step into this space. What are your thoughts around this area? One of the key missing ingredients in that that I see in like a Western colonial leadership sort of model is we seem to have lost the focus around relationships and that. We, we touched on it earlier on with the acknowledgement of country, welcome to country and that, that a big part of that was building the rapport, putting the connection so that you, know, you were able to make that connection first before moving into business and, and things like that. Yeah, but there seems to have been a big moving away from you know, building relationships, working together. But one of the things um, Uncle Paul has always said to me um, was that, our people, we didn't have castles, we didn't have fences, and that we had no need to keep people out because we could build positive working relationships. Why would you go to the trouble of building a wall and that to keep someone out when you could just have a conversation? So we don't have those conversations and that anymore. But I also see uh, as I'm sort of climbing the, the ladder and that within this organisation but other places that I've worked as well, I also see metaphorical forts being built within the workplace as well. And obviously not specific to TAFE, but um, some people's style of leadership around sort of empire building and that as well. So building your team um, around you know, people that think the same way as you think, act the same way that you act, basically build a team that has sort of followers as opposed to diversity in opinion, diversity in skills. Whereas our, our uh, Aboriginal community style of leadership is around, like we touched on earlier, lateral leadership as well. So taking into account that people have different views, different perspectives, but bringing them into the conversation, allowing them to have input. There was no hierarchy. Um, you value that person's opinion just like like your own and everyone has a voice in the conversation. Yeah, more of a, a collective way of doing things as, a, as opposed to sort of individualistic. Yeah, I see sort of constant reminders within our culture of just the, the need to work together. There's a really really good example in local rock art, for example, where different clans from a specific totem that were all represented by the same animal, but that animal would be depicted on stone, broken up into pieces, and each of the different family groups that made up that totem would represent one part of the animal. And people were taken there and shown that, I know this is this family group, this is this family group. You'd have a visual representation just to show that you're not above them, they're not above you, yeah. um, you're all a part of the animal, um, you need to work together for the betterment of the species. So open communication, respect, working together. So I feel like some of the thinking that's gone into that could be picked up uh, within the workplace as well. Like Teams seem to be in competition from time to time rather than going, okay, rather than looking at the teams and saying, well, your team clashes with our role, it's like, okay, well, how can we actually work together? We're all part of this bigger, broader organisation. How can we work together for the betterment of the organisation and, uh, I guess, put our customers and our students um, at the forefront of our decision-making? 
It's interesting. A lot of the things that you've just shared then, a lot of those words sit on the walls in organisations as their value statements, don't they? And it's about living them rather than looking at them on on the wall. You said before, when you're talking about hearing from different people and not necessarily the same perspectives, but different people. I, I was talking to someone on Saturday, I was recording a podcast with Craig Harper from the U Project, and, and I spoke to Harps about, do you consider yourself like-minded or like-spirited? How would you want to be seen? And, and I have this view that I think like-spirited, and particularly with what I'm hearing today, like-spirited comes to mind for me a lot. It's about there's a spirit to, for things to be better, and we don't all have to think the same. And I think that came out beautifully in in what you said. So here's one without notice because I, I read this in a post, I think, that you put out, Kylie, not long back, and it was it was some lessons you learned from a session you were in recently. And it just when I read it, I went, holy shit. And it sort of lines up with some things like I, I, I don't know enough about, you know, things like reconciliation, action plans, and and that sort of thing. I know, Daniel, you have it on your shirt, and for obviously your listeners can't see it, but these things are really important. But at times I'm going to say the cynical mark will be like, is this just another tick-the-box activity? Is this the optics and the cosmetics that some organisations do to go, we've done it now and we can move on? Don't exclude by including with the words that I read in a patient now smiling at that, Kylie. What does that mean to you to, as, as very proud Aboriginal people, what does that term mean to you? I think don't exclude by including, that sort of rings true for a lot of things and especially a lot, probably a lot of diverse groups. Yeah, I guess, guess for me, sometimes despite people's best efforts, they want to try to do things that they feel will benefit Aboriginal people. I kind of describe it as the low-hanging fruit. Sometimes people yep. go for the, for the bare minimum, something they can do that lets them feel like they're they're contributing and that'll appease people and um, then they can move on and at least they've done that. So for me, it's about uh, rather than going for the low-hanging fruit and just doing a tokenistic gesture, something like trying to include people in and doing something that's more token can have have the opposite effect where people will be like, we've just done that and now they're still not happy. Oh, yeah. But at, at the end of the day, yeah, we want concrete action and something that's actually going to have make genuine change as opposed to something that can make people feel like they're contributing. So not just a ticker box action, something that'll have long-term benefits for our people. I love the low-hanging fruit piece, um, the appeasement piece. What came to mind for me, I, I'm for those who listen to my podcast, know I love adaptive leadership, the adaptive leadership framework. And adaptive leadership is about changing values, beliefs, behaviours, personal relationships. It's all about the behavioural stuff. And and then they say that we tend to work in the technical leadership space, which is a new program, a new policy, a new process, and then it'll be all okay. And like you said, go after the low-hanging shit. What happens then is that the people that are subjected to that, their bullshit detectors go off really quickly and it's like, here we go again. So, mate, I think you've explained that well. Kylie, Apologies for putting you on the spot, but uh, what are you thinking now? Yeah, no, no, all good. I think in diversity and inclusion more broadly, there was a time where we sort of, you know, had sort of developed a program for diverse groups. And I guess the audience was non-Aboriginal people and non-culturally linguistic diverse people. And I think what what we did as an organisation is we developed a training program to support culturally linguistic diverse people 
But what we did was we included Aboriginal people in that conversation. And the conversation around culturally linguistic diverse was around immigration. Yep. And there was a lot of there were a lot of conversation there around Aboriginal people didn't immigrate to Australia. And I know that. So I sort of, you know, went into that for that conversation to say Aboriginal people, whilst we're diverse, so are non-Aboriginal people and so are um, non-culturally linguistic diverse people. So we have to really understand who the audience is for multicultural. And I think that's probably something where, you know, you can include by excluding in terms of trying to include multicultural Australia and culturally linguistic diverse Australia but we weren't necessarily, and we're including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in that conversation, but we weren't including people from, you know, non-cultural linguistic or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. So, therefore, the conversation is who is multicultural Australia? And so whilst we're including, you know, some um, races in the conversation, we're excluding other races. So I think it's about really having that broad conversation around making sure that we include people in the conversation without excluding, similar to LGBTQIA plus communities. You know, we can include um, people from those communities, but we can actually exclude, say, um, our trans communities. Yep. And so we really need to make sure that we have our information correct before we start the inclusion process and that we our stakeholder management is really key to that conversation to make sure we know that we're getting all views of the conversation and I think that's really what lateral leadership is is to make sure you bring people into the conversation like Daniel said it's not about you know who you want to bring on the journey and have followers you actually want to have people challenge you because challenge is growth and I think that that's that's what lateral leadership is for me in terms of that concept as well. Thank you very much it's funny how I I reckon that the western leadership model is very good at trying to put things into boxes very nice, neat little boxes. And then I think where the power comes from is what's happening in the intersects of the boxes rather than, than doing that. Let's finish it off with um, if people want to connect with both of you, because I'm sure that people will be listening to this today and they would have picked up a hell of a lot as I have. Where's a good place to make connection with both of you? Uh, probably emails at TAFE. Yep. Yeah. I can put your emails in the, I'll put it in the episode notes. LinkedIn as well. Would, you, would LinkedIn be a place? Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I'm an avid user of LinkedIn. Um, I think that's a good place to start. All right. And and for you, Daniel, the same? Yeah, I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Um, I just need to get better at it, but this is a good opportunity to <laughs> to start using it more efficiently. <laughs> so get ready to be bombarded with a whole lot of LinkedIn connections. By the way, folks, if you reach out to them, don't try and sell them something because there's nothing worse. You've just listened to an hour of podcasting around the importance of connection and belonging and understanding and getting to know each other. So don't don't try the old, oh, here, you should buy a set of these steak knives and a few other things from me as well. That doesn't work. Hey, um, this has been an hour of amazing education for me. I hope you both enjoyed it. Thank you very much for coming on and uh, look forward to chatting in the future. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. For those who listen to this podcast regularly, I will say at times that uh, I consider this to be my learning laboratory or I guess almost like my let's call it my development or university place these days because I get to learn so much and today was no exception in fact of the 100 nearly 200 episodes now I think this has been one of the ones where I've learned the most and I must say thank you to both Kylie and Daniel for being so open to share their backstories today 
what has made them what they are today. As I've said, both very proud of the the country that they come from. I was really um, taken aback by the reference that Kylie made to the Aboriginal backpack and, and, and what really stood out, how she was so proud to be Aboriginal. But the cultural safety back at certain times in the organisation she's with now that she says is now very culturally safe, it wasn't as safe and the environment didn't really allow her, she thought, to fully wear the backpack. So as a proud Aboriginal woman, she was in conflict with having to fit in, I guess, and manage her way through what was at the time not a culturally safe place, which would take a lot of leadership, a lot of courage and a lot of bravery to do that. So I think that was something that was that really stuck out for me in the episode. Lateral leadership was a concept that I had not heard of before, um, certainly not from an Aboriginal perspective. I really loved how they talked about that. I loved understanding and getting educated on why the acknowledgement of country is such an important thing to Aboriginal people and that it's not a tokenistic piece and perhaps we need to be conscious of that when when it is used at certain events um, that we see, I guess, all the time, particularly sporting events as well. Understanding that whilst things like reconciliation action plans and the like are important, that we need to understand they're not just there as a tick-the-box activity, and I think that's something that came through. The idea of don't exclude by including, and I think Kylie and Daniel both explained that really well, this idea that you know, it can be easy to go after the low-hanging fruit in this important work and that there's bigger work that's required. It's more of an adaptive change and a technical fix. And we just, everyone needs to be conscious of that when thinking about going down what is really the right path, but just understanding what the intentions are behind that. I loved when Daniel talked about the metaphorical forts that are built in organisations. We were talking about how how organisations and workplaces today could learn from adopting some of the leadership lessons, some of the way that leadership is conducted and has been conducted for over 60,000 years. And, you know, just the simple things like building relationships, doing business in a way that is about connection and belonging and about understanding and also welcoming, being welcoming and welcoming others onto your country and at the same time, looking out for them as well and asking them to respect where they are. Now, a lot of these words, as I said in the podcast, come up in uh, value statements and um, there's a big difference between having them as words on a wall and actually living them out. And I think something I really took out of today is the way that both Kylie and Daniel live these words. As Kylie said, they have a strong connection to country. It's just an expectation that that's the way they're going to turn up and be so incredible. I wanted to say a big thank you to to Daniel and Kylie for what they shared today, but also what they've shared over the time, which has created two parts to this podcast. So what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to play the second part in a couple of weeks' time. We'll, we'll drop another podcast in between, but we'll play the second part, which we really start to get into some of the more nuanced issues around racism and the trauma that's come from from what the... Aboriginals have had to endure over the last couple of hundred years, but how that re- reflects back into 60,000 years of their culture. So there is some of it that is quite challenging 
and it was challenging for me and I actually learned some valuable lessons. And again, I'm indebted to these two for, for allowing me to see some things that I couldn't see or I didn't want to see. So very worthwhile having a listen to in a couple of weeks' time, part two of the podcast with Kylie Tarleton and Daniel Jack. Hey, if you love this one, why not rate it five stars and leave us a little comment as well. Share it with your friends as well. If they, if you liked it, share it with your friends. I think this is an episode that you should share widely because there was just so much of an educational factor in this today, so much personal stuff that relates into the workplace that I think it's a podcast, particularly if this is an area that you are interested in that's worth having a listen to with your colleagues, your family, your community to get a greater understanding as I did today. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.